Help defend the church by becoming a supporter of 1 Peter 5. Your tax-deductible contributions enable us to continue our work to restore Catholic culture and rebuild Catholic tradition. Make a real difference in the church. Go to 1peter5.com forward slash donate today. You're listening to the 1 Peter 5 podcast. It is a real joy for us. Rebuilding Catholic Culture, Restoring Catholic Tradition. Hey there, 1P5ers, Steve here. So I want to do a brief introduction to this podcast and then get right into it. Uh, Last Saturday, April 9th, I was invited to go down to Washington, D.C. to the Fox Studios to go on Fox and Friends to talk about the new post-synodal apostolic exhortation Amoris Laetitia. Um, so I did, I went in there, I, I did the, the in-studio thing, well actually it was a satellite remote, it was very odd, you can read about it on our website, I, I wrote about it there, and I'll link to that in the show notes, but let me play the video for you, because what happened is the segment was supposed to be five minutes long, and it wound up only being three, and it was not supposed to be a debate, and yet it turned into one. And I was kind of cut off and and came up short on my ability to answer. So what I did is I came home and made a follow-up video where I got to talk more about what I wanted to say uh, that I didn't get to say. And because I had no time limit, it was a 40-minute long video. So at the request of several people, I'm turning it into a podcast because I think it's a a really good discussion of, of sort of where we are following the release of the exhortation. So first, let me play for you the Fox clip, you can listen to the audio, and then we will cut over to the other video, uh, which is now an audio file, and you can you can hear my follow-up to that, and that'll be this episode of the podcast. So before I do, two things, two house-cleaning items. Number one, we now sell coffee, and I need to let you know about it um, because it's one of the ways that we support this apostolate. You can go to 1P5Coffee, the number one, the letter P, the number five, 1P5Coffee.com. Check it out. The coffee is roasted by Lifeboat Coffee Roasters. They're the provider. They're a pro-life Catholic coffee company based out of Arizona. The coffee is really good. I'm picky about coffee. They sent me a bag of the Gregorian Roast. Last week, I went through my first bag. I plowed through it. It was fantastic. It's good stuff. So if you're interested in supporting us but you know would rather get something and not just give in a, don- a donation, uh, check out our coffee store. We're also working with a new company called Where the Scapular. Um, they make these scapulars that are essentially unbreakable, and they provide a lifetime replacement guarantee. They're a little spendier than regular scapulars, but they don't break. They give us a nice commission on every scapular sold. If you're looking for a scapular and you need one that's tough or you just want the peace of mind of knowing it's the last scapular you're ever going to buy, you can go to them through our affiliate link on our website. It's onepeter5.com forward slash scapular. Now for the Fox and Friends video. Well, a groundbreaking document out of the Vatican yesterday as Pope Francis releases his new paper on family entitled The Joy of Love, re-examining centuries-old Catholic beliefs on marriage. But is the church ready for this? Joining me now to weigh in is Steve Skojak, a publisher and executive director of 1 Peter 5, and Monsignor Kieran Harrington, uh, vicar of communications for the Diocese of Brooklyn. All right, I want to jump right into the joy of love here. Uh, Steve, I'll start with you first. How is this going to change the church? Because the, the, the 
uh, Pope is uh, this, in this document is calling for priests to welcome irregular unions. Well, ir irregular unions is sort of a code word for any kind of relationship that would have been considered adulterous or sinful in the past. We're seeing a lot of of sort of creative language and looking for legal loopholes. Uh, you know, people talk about whether the doctrine of the church has been changed. The doctrine of the church doesn't change, but the practical application of the doctrine can. And, and it's sort of like if you had a 35 mile an hour speed limit in a town and everybody goes 60 miles an hour through there and, and nobody enforces that, well, yeah, the law is still on the books, but if people aren't following the law, then that's the problem. And so I think what we're seeing in this document is an attempt to change behavior through pastoral application, saying to people, you know what, the things that we used to say are sinful, the things that we used to say are a problem, well, maybe we can find some justifications for those things. So, Monsignor, what, how does this change things in your view? Because some see this as uh, firmly breaking tradition in the Catholic Church and, and, and welcoming uh, those that have been divorced or have these irregular unions. Uh, others see this as opening the doors to those who have been scared away from attending the Catholic Church. So absolutely not. The starting point here is a relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. This is what the Pope is saying. He's saying that essentially you have an experience of God's mercy, an experience of the love of Christ, and when you have the experience of the love of Christ, that then brings about a metanoia or a conversion. And so the starting point is not necessarily the moral conversion, as Steve is suggesting. The starting point is the experience of the love of Christ that then brings about a moral conversion in one's life. You may hear something uh, different, Steve, when it comes to conservative Catholics. Uh, when they view some of these changes happening, uh, they are questioning the future uh, of the Catholic religion in the church. Absolutely. You know, this is the thing. You know, we can debate all day whether or not uh, you know, mercy is, is what's really being applied here. The problem is that mercy presupposes repentance. In order to be forgiven for something, That's not you true. have to be sorry. Yeah, no, it absolutely Monsignor, is I true. want to give you a chance to respond to that. That's not true. Uh, mercy is a free gift. It's not merited. It's something that God gives us freely. Listen, there's no argument here that this is not a conservative Orthodox Pope. The person who rolls out the statement is Cardinal Schornborn. He was the editor of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I'm sure, Steve, you don't think that the Catechism of the Catholic Church is a liberal document. The fact is, the Pope is saying the starting point is a relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. The starting point is not law. The law comes afterwards. The relationship with Christ is what's formative. Monsignor, what is the reaction that you're seeing? In, in general uh, from, from the religious community, from the Catholic community, other priests and monsignors that you speak with, are, are they sharing in thoughts with you? Well, I mean, here's the thing. I'm a kid who grows up in the 70s and 80s where the church was going bananas, where everything was left open. There were pizza and beer masses. So my priest predisposition is for clarity. That's what Pope Benedict stressed, clarity. What Pope Francis is saying is we have to try a new direction to allow ourselves to go into muddied waters, the muddied circumstances of people's lives in order for them to have an experience of Christ that could bring about a change in their life. Right, I think that's what most of us are thinking is going to happen here. All right, things definitely changing at the Catholic Church, and uh, thank you for, to both of you, Steve and Monsignor, for joining us. Uh, great to get your perspectives. And now here's the audio portion of the video that I did as a follow-up to that Fox & Friends interview. You can still see this video as well on our website. Just go to the links on the podcast page. This morning, I went on Fox and Friends on the Fox News Channel to talk about the new post-synodal apostolic exhortation on marriage and family called Amoris Laetitia, or in English, the joy of love. 
the segment was supposed to be five minutes, so I didn't expect a very in-depth debate, but it wound up being much shorter. I only got to answer two questions, was cut off in the second one by a somewhat brusque Monsignor Kiernan, communications director for the Diocese of Brooklyn, and then the segment ended, and I was left alone and cold in a studio where nobody came to get me, and I had to find my way home. No, but really, it was a very strange and mechanical experience, but we live in the 21st century, and I can do videos at home, so I thought I'd come here and talk a little bit more about the problems, not just with the document, but with the way the interview was conducted. Now, I have not seen the video of the interview, and the nature of the beast is it's very difficult to remember exactly what was asked and what you said because it all happens in a flash. It's very quick. Uh, I was not in studio with the anchors. I was uh, doing a satellite remote. So I was sitting in a room about the size of a large master bedroom closet staring into a camera lens and I had audio piped into my ear and that was the extent of my human interaction uh, during that interview. Um, but it was, it was sort of strange because my assertion was, uh, and continues to be, that the problem with this document, it's difficult to categorically you know, condemn or promote uh, a document that's over 260 pages and nearly 60,000 words. That's the length of your average novel. But I think that what matters is to understand magisterial authority, magisterial teaching. So insofar as this document, um, let's say, elucidates and, and promulgates the, the doctrines of the church on marriage and family, uh, perhaps, perhaps casting new light, new explanations on existing doctrine that's existed for centuries, then it's a good document. Which means that what we really need to be concerned about are the time bombs, as I call them, time bombs that are inserted into the document, ambiguities, crafty language that's designed to be exploited by those who are looking for legal loopholes. You see, the church operates on principles of of jurisprudence. We have laws, we have rules we have to follow. I mean, you go back to the simplest set of laws that we have, it's the Ten Commandments. The church has expounded upon those commandments into all kinds of practical situations, um, but they're all derivatives. Those, those moral laws are derivatives of the Decalogue, of the Ten Commandments. And we have an established body of teaching on marriage. The Catholic Church is one of the only Christian denominations, actually the only religion in the world that I'm aware of, that still teaches that marriage, if validly entered into and sacramental in nature, is indissoluble. You don't get a do-over. Once you're married, you're always married until death do you part. That's how it works. There's no way out. Annulments don't get rid of marriages. They're not Catholic divorce. Annulments are essentially saying that the marriage never actually happened in the first place because one or both of the parties were unable to give their consent in the way that the sacrament requires. There was some impediment, some, some canonical defect, something that kept their consent from being sufficient for the sacrament to have been performed. You don't get an annulment. You get a declaration of nullity. The church investigates, they look at your marriage, they say, oh, yeah, you know, you 
had such and such a thing happen before you were married or you didn't intend to have children even though that was part of your vows or you were within such and such a degree of consanguinity or you were the other person's godparents, one of the impediments. I mean, there's a, there's a number of canonical impediments. And then they say, well, based on what we know, you were unable to validly get married and we didn't catch that. So we're telling you now that your marriage, though it appeared to be valid at the time upon further review was actually not because intent, consent, these are all important parts of the sacrament of marriage. So that's in a nutshell. Annulments are something that is granted that that is different than divorce. Divorce is taking a union, taking a covenant, because really that's what marriage is. It's not a contract, legally speaking, in the eyes of, of society, it's a contract. But in the eyes of the church, marriage is a covenant between two spouses and God. And when you make a covenant with God, it you can't break it. It's an unbreakable thing. So what winds up happening is people who get civil divorces and civil remarriages, because the church can't bless a second marriage, it's not a marriage. What it is is, I don't know, concubinage. It's adultery. It's adultery. That's what it is. Because you're still married to your original spouse if that marriage was valid and sacramental. Pretty straightforward. This is an established teaching. The problem with Amoris Laetitia is that it looks for ways around these rules. It looks for exceptions. The example I gave uh, when I was on the news this morning was if you live in a town with a 35 mile an hour speed limit and everybody blows through it at 60 miles an hour, nobody ever gets pulled over, nobody ever gets a ticket, nobody even says anything about it. Well, the law is still on the books. But the law, not being enforced, might as well not be a law at all. And that's where you run into a problem, because you'll hear people say, and I'll say it too, the Pope can't change the doctrine on marriage or on sexuality. He can't. He's unable to do so. The infallibility of his office, the indefectibility of the church, makes it impossible for doctrine to be contradicted. It can't be. It can be expounded upon, but it cannot be contradicted. In its essence, it must always remain intact, the same, forever. That's one of the neat things about being part of a divinely instituted religion. God guarantees the church and her teachings, and we can trust that they are not in error. But this is why an apostolic exhortation can be such a dicey thing. Because an apostolic exhortation is not, strictly speaking, an infallible document. It is not something that binds the faithful to give their assent. And particular in, those, in as much as it deals with pastoral application of existing doctrines, we're getting way down into the level of discipline and governance. And, and when I say way down, I mean this is not high-level discipline and governance. Basically, what they're doing with this document is kicking the ball into the court of the individual. They're dropping this down to the most local possible level and saying, you, married man, married woman, need to discern. Discern is a big word because it's, it's easily abused. You know, what is discernment? It's I pray about it, I think about it, I try to make the best decision. Do I know whether I made the best decision? No, nope. I just have to hope. And so discernment becomes the mechanism by which the law can be circumvented. The speed limit, not enforced. Uh, the internal forum, another big phrase, conscience. The internal forum has to do with deciding in my own conscience whether what I'm doing is right. 
Well, my conscience has to be well-formed. In order for it to be well-formed, I have to know what the teachings of the church are. And if I don't know what they are, then I can't trust my conscience to tell me the right thing to do. If I do know what they are, I have to follow them. My conscience obligates me to do so. I owe my assent to the teachings of the church. See, it's all of a piece. So this document tries to find ways to minimalize and relativize our need as lay faithful to adhere to the doctrines of the church. It justifies adultery. Hard to believe, but there's actually a paragraph where it talks about people who are in second quote-unquote marriages, adulterous second marriages. The church is now liking to call them irregular unions because it's a nice, generic, safe term that doesn't make anybody feel bad. But it's bad. It's morally sinful, and it can cost you your soul. So if you're living in an adulterous second marriage, according to the Pope, there could be a situation where, having been committed for a certain period of time and grown in love and blah, 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 it's not real love, honestly. If you love someone, you don't send them to hell. Separate issue. But if there is a level of commitment that exists and there are children, he argues that it would be better to stay in that union and in some cases not live the Josephite marriage, which is what the church always prescribed uh, for people who were in those situations. You know, let's say that they converted after they were in a second marriage or or they, you know, they repented after a second marriage. They're called to continence, to complete chastity within the marriage, to live as brother and sister. Well, he says that that can be a problem because, you know, without expressions of intimacy, certain expressions of intimacy, then fidelity can be compromised in that second union and that this will damage the children. Now, this is all written in very vague language, and I'm not reading you the exact quote. I'll probably put more of it in the text around this video, but... You know, this is language designed to open doors for certain kinds of behavior. Similarly, there is language in, in what is arguably the worst passage anyone has identified so far in the document. Uh, footnote number 351 on paragraph 305 in chapter 8 of the document. I joked recently with my friends, this is how the church ends, not with a bang, but with a footnote. It's not really the end of the church, but for practical purposes, a large segment of the institutional church will begin to disintegrate further, if not entirely, under the auspices of bad pastoral advice contained in a document like this. Advice that actually condones and keeps people in their sin, rather than calling them to repentance, rather than leading them home. Because this is what the church is. The church is a mother, a teacher, a governor, a guide. It's her purpose, and really her only purpose, to lead people to heaven. That is why the church exists. That's why Christ established it. So when the church begins telling people that it's okay for them to continue in behavior that will, will actually condemn them to hell, she's working in direct contravention to the mission she was given by our Lord himself. So paragraph 351, I should probably read it. Um, because it's the only way I can accurately convey what it contains. It says, in certain cases, this can include the help of sacraments. What is the this here? Uh, it's footnote on 305. And this is where the Pope, I mean, you want to talk about taking an area of moral clarity and trying to make it gray. 
Listen to this. I'm going to read you all of paragraph 305. For this reason, a pastor cannot feel that it is enough simply to apply moral laws to those living in irregular situations. I'm going to move this over so I can read it while looking at the camera. Let's start again. For this reason, a pastor cannot feel that it is enough simply to apply moral laws to those living in irregular situations, as if they were stones to throw at people's lives. Listen to that language. The moral law being considered stones to throw, evoking what image? The image of those who wanted to stone the woman in adultery. And our Lord said to them, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. The problem is that the moral law is the judge. I'm not the judge. You're not the judge. But the moral law and those who are charged with, with executing it, those are the appropriate judges of sins. This would speak, he says, uh, bespeak the closed heart of one who is used to hiding behind the church's teachings. Who do you know who hides behind the church's teachings? The church's teachings exist for our salvation. They give us an ideal and a model to live up to as we seek and strive to attain perfection, sanctity, and sainthood. Salvation, again, all comes back to the basics. This would speak to, uh, bespeak the closed heart of one used to hiding behind the church's teachings, sitting on the chair of Moses and judging at times with superiority and superficiality difficult cases and wounded families. Interestingly, he quotes himself there because that was the address that he gave at the conclusion of the Synod in October of 2015. It's always good to be able to quote yourself. Along these same lines, the International Theological Commission has noted why he needs to defer to them. I'm not sure he's the supreme pontiff, the head of the universal church and Christ's vicar on earth. There is, just so you know, no higher moral authority in the world than the Pope. But I digress. Along these same lines, the International Theological Commission has noted that natural law could not be presented as an already established set of rules that impose themselves a priori on the moral subject. Rather, it is a source of objective inspiration for the deeply personal process of making decisions. I don't know that that actually means anything, but what I think it means um, is basically that the natural law, which is supposed to be the most basic law that God writes into our hearts, um, shouldn't be understood as an objective set of rules that we can all understand and apply. No, no. It should be the basis for our personal process of making decisions. Discernment, discernment, discernment. Whatever it is that I think the natural law means, that's okay for me. Continuing. Because of forms of conditioning and mitigating factors, it is possible that in an objective situation of sin, which may not be subjectively culpable or fully such, a person can be living in God's grace, can love, and can also grow in the life of grace and charity while receiving the church's help to this end. Parsing that, it is true that there are things that can be objectively sinful that a person may not subjectively be culpable for because of the lack of knowledge. For example, the conditions for mortal sin are, are that it is grave matter, that it is 
an opportunity exists for sufficient reflection on that matter, and then full consent is given to the sin. So you have to know it's bad. You have to be aware of the fact, like have time to think about it and realize, hey, I'm doing a bad thing, um, and then give your full consent. It can be impeded for different reasons. Uh, you know, somebody could be drunk, which is why you're not supposed to get drunk. Somebody could be drugged. Somebody could be under duress. There's a number of reasons why a person might not give full consent. Maybe they're just like vaguely aware that they're doing something they shouldn't be, but they're not really thinking it through. I mean, it, it, it gets gets kind of in the weeds, but, but a mortal sin is the kind of sin you know you're committing. You know that you're committing it. Uh, it, it should be very clear in your mind, whoa, I just crossed a line. I just crossed the line, and and I'm and I don't care. I'm doing it anyway. But but that's why objective situations of mortal sin are clearly defined. Adultery is always objectively a mortal sin. It is grave matter, and if you engage in it willfully, considering that it is a, a grave sin, and give your full consent, then then you are committing a mortal sin. And so any attempt to dumb people down, to make them so ignorant that they can't meet these conditions. It's dangerous because these are these are obvious. Like these are gimmies. You don't kill people. You don't sleep with other people's wives. You don't steal their stuff. You know, grave sins are are pretty clear cut. They're harder to commit than venial sins um, because you know they're very serious. You know, you you've got to mean it. And and so equipping people to know that they're stepping into those sins is is one of the best ways to keep them out of those sins. So there's some truth to the fact that there may be a mitigation of, of subjective culpability. Maybe there are people who don't know adultery is a sin. Whose fault is that? If they're Catholic, whose fault is that? Whose job was it to teach them that? Whose job was it to preach on that? Whose job was it to catechize them? Whose job was it to share the teachings of the church with them? So let's continue. This is, this is, by the way, the passage that has the footnote on it. So we're going to revisit this sentence again, and then we'll go to the footnote. Because of forms of conditioning and mitigating factors, it's possible that in an objective situation of sin, which may not be subjectively culpable or fully such, a person can be living in God's grace. It's getting sketchy there because mortal sin kills the life of grace in the soul can love and can also grow in the life of grace and charity while receiving the church's help to this end. Even if someone is not subjectively culpable for uh, a mortal sin, it's still a sin. It still damages their relationship with God. It's at the very least venially sinful for them subjectively. Um, this idea that they can sort of wallow in this sin as the church helps them out of it, I don't know about that. So here we go to the footnote. The footnote says, in certain cases, this can include the help of the sacraments. Hence, I want to remind priests that the confessional must not be a torture chamber. Have you ever been tortured in confession? I, I mean, I've walked out of the confessional going, seriously, that's all the penance that I get for what I just said to you. Honestly, that's it. I, I usually try to find some extra, you know, I'll say extra prayers or something, right? Because you walk in with your sins, and as Augustine says, the penalty is so light. 
And when Augustine was getting penances, they were more serious than the ones we get now. They say, hey, say Hail Mary. Really? Okay. Um, I do not want confession to be a torture chamber, the Pope says, but rather an encounter with the Lord's mercy. Again, quoting himself in the Apostolic Exhortation Evangelii Gaudium. He goes on to say, I would also point out that the Eucharist is not a prize for the perfect, but a powerful medicine and nourishment for the weak. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the Casper proposal. He has attempted to redefine whether people are living in sin. He has attempted to redefine the conditions for the culpability of sin, or at least to diminish them such that it's unclear now. It's unclear whether or not sin really exists in this situation. And then tries to say that they should be able to approach the Eucharist because it's not a prize for the perfect. Well, first of all, that's a straw man. It's not a prize for the perfect. It's not a prize for the strong. It's not a prize for the weak. It's not a prize for anybody. It's also not Optimus Prime, and it can't transform into a truck. It's the Eucharist. It's our Lord's body and blood, soul and divinity, fully present in an unbloody manner under the appearances of bread and wine in the host. It is Jesus Christ. And in order to receive Jesus Christ, you don't need to be perfect, weak, strong, any of it. You know what you need to be? In a state of grace. You need to not have mortal sin on your soul. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. You know, don't eat and drink condemnation unto yourself. Discern the body and blood of the Lord so you do not eat it unworthily. Am I worthy to receive this sacrament or or am I in a in a condition of mortal sin outside the state of grace that keeps me from receiving it? And guess what? It's not hard to be in a state of grace. It may be hard to stay in it for some people. Sometimes, right? But I go to confession, and then I'm okay. And I try to make a firm purpose of amendment, and I go to communion for the graces that it gives me to strengthen me to sin no more. This is the cycle. You know, you, you clean up, before you go to dinner, <laughs> you know, I'm going out, I, I dress up, I put on a shirt and tie, I take my wife out on a date. I'm not going to go like a slob. I don't go to communion with my soul like a slob, all blackened with sin. I, I, I got to take, take care of that. I got to see to it first. Do you wash your hands before you eat? Yeah, you're just out running errands all day on the subway, you know, touching all kinds of stuff. Do you wash your hands before you eat? You put clean things into yourself. You approach precious things with clean hands, with clean soul. These concepts are so fundamental and basic and, and just common sense. But they're trying to fudge it to give people an opportunity to have their cake and eat it too, to continue living in adulterous situations, but also receive the sacraments. Don't ask me what the end game is, because I've been trying to figure this out for years, and I don't know. I, the only thing I can think of is is that this is a satanic agenda. It is an attempt to destroy the institution of the family, to destroy the moral authority of the church, and to commit as much sacrilege toward the Eucharist as possible in order to, to desecrate it and, and to diminish what little belief in the real presence is left. It, that would be my guess, but, but I don't know that everybody who's acting uh, toward this agenda is recognizing it for what it is. I think they're all pursuing their own ideologies and passions and whatever they are, and in concert they're being manipulated by the father of lies, the prince of this world, 
to attack the church and deal it the most severe wounds possible and our Lord in the Eucharist. So I want to finish reading the paragraph of number 305 though, because so we looked at this footnote. Now we come back to the paragraph and this is where you see exactly <laughs> he's being transparent what he's trying to do. He says, discernment must help to find possible ways of responding to God and growing in the midst of limits. By thinking that everything is black and white, we sometimes close off the way of grace and of growth and discourage paths of sanctification which give glory to God. Let us remember that a small step in the midst of great human limitations can be more pleasing to God than a life which appears outwardly in order but moves through the day without confronting great difficulties in that he is quoting himself again, Evangelii Gaudium. The practical pastoral care of ministers and of communities must not fail to embrace this reality. So he doesn't like things being black and white, not even moral teachings. Um, and he thinks that a small step, uh, you know, under great human limitations can be more pleasing to God than a life which appears outwardly in order, but moves through the day without confronting great difficulties. It's, it's straw man are us out here. There's a life that appears to be outwardly in order usually comes from an interior disposition that is also ordered. Think of the saints. And it's not as though the saints never confronted great difficulties because, well, they absolutely did. And their struggles may have been interior and they may have been spiritual, but they were real. So this is what we're dealing with in the document. And, it, and it's, you know, it's not just that. There's more. Um, and it's going to take time for theologians to go through this and to really sort of parse out all the things uh, that are, are problematic. These time bombs that are in there, this has been the playbook since the 1960s. We'll, we'll put a bunch of nice, pretty Catholic language around a rotten core of, of ambiguity and insinuation that opens the door for things that will actually cause harm to the faith. This is half a century plus of the same freaking thing and it's still happening because it works every time every time so i want to address something else uh, i'm going to reach over here and open something that i want to share with you um something that monsignor kiernan said that really dumbstruck me was that you know cardinal schoenborn of vienna was the one who presented the apostolic exhortation. And Cardinal Schönborn is also the editor of the catechism. And so for me to say that this is a liberal document means I'm implying that the editor of the catechism, he, is that a liberal document? First of all, that's a complete non sequitur. We need apparently to teach some logic in the seminaries. But let's take Cardinal Schönborn specifically because Oh, the deep irony is that I just wrote an article a couple days ago about Cardinal Schönborn's own words on the concerns contained in the exhortation. And let me tell you, Cardinal Schönborn, with his happy John Paul II-esque face and his conservative street cred, is actually probably as bad or maybe even worse than Cardinal Casper. But I can prove it. So in his own words, here are some things that he has said. During an October 26th press conference last year, Schönborn, whose own parents were divorced when he was a teenager, 
told reporters he felt that the Synod could not recommend as clear, a clear yes or no to communion for the divorced and remarried. There is no black and white, a simple yes or no, he said, arguing that situations vary widely, and so too must the church's response. Huh, sounds kind of like what the apostolic exhortation is saying. On the issue of how the church talks about gays and lesbians, Schoenborn also has been a champion of a more inclusive approach. The church should not look in the bedroom first, he says, but in the dining room. This was in a September 2015 interview. He goes on, quote, We can and we must respect the decision to form a union with a person of the same sex. What? And to seek means under civil law to protect their living together with laws to ensure such protection. Schoenborn spoke of a gay friend who, after multiple temporary relationships, now has a stable partner. Quote, they share a life. They share their joys and sufferings. They help one another, he said. It must be recognized that this person took an important step for his own good and the good of others, even though it certainly is not a situation the church can consider regular. Yes, he sounds incredibly orthodox to me. He is a man who contradicts the catechism that he edited, Monsignor Cannon, and that's ridiculous. The other thing that Monsignor Cannon said, and this was actually how the interview ended as I got cut off, the concept of mercy came up. And, you know, I said we can debate whether what's happening here is merciful or not all day long. But the question is what mercy is. And mercy presupposes repentance, sorrow for sin. And the good Monsignor just talked right over me and pretty much yelled at me and said, no, it, no, that's, mercy is a, is a free gift given by God. No, grace is a free gift given by God. Mercy is a gift that must be redeemed. You know, if I get a free burrito from Chipotle, I wouldn't eat there, but whatever. Let's say I get a free burrito from Chipotle and they send me a thing in the mail. How do I get the burrito? Do I sit at home? Do I just walk around outside going, I really wish I had that burrito. Where is it going to come? No. What do I do? I go into the Chipotle and I hand them my coupon and I get the burrito. The burrito maybe is free, but there is something I have to do, an action I have to take. I have to go towards the burrito. I know this is absurd. But we're talking about people who don't even have a kindergarten understanding of church teaching. I have to go toward the burrito. And then when I receive the burrito, it's because there's been an exchange. I came to the people who had the burrito. They gave the burrito to me. When it comes to mercy, God is merciful. He is also just. His justice demands that we pay a penalty for our sins. If that were not the case, then why why, why, Monsignor Kiernan, or anybody else, did he allow his only begotten son to suffer such a cruel and ignominious death? Jesus endured that passion to pay the price for our sins because justice must be satisfied. Mercy is God's own mitigation of 
of what just consequence we would ordinarily suffer for our sins because he loves us. And in that sense, it is given freely. Christ died on the cross. On the cross, That's an act of mercy because justice demanded that we all go to hell. We all deserve hell. We are born in original sin and we all deserve hell. We come into this world under Satan's power. This is why the traditional rite of baptism has multiple exorcisms over the child because we are born into this world in the clutches of the devil. And the church frees us from that in baptism by which we participate in Christ's death and resurrection. Mercy is is an act of love from God who says, in justice, you deserve this, but I have found a way to satisfy justice through my son. And I can therefore reduce your sentence. You don't have to go to eternal death. You can come and be with me forever in the happiness of eternal salvation. But you don't get off scot-free. We're not Protestants. Once saved, always saved. We have to work out our salvation. We have to do something. We have to confess our sins, grow in virtue, offer things up, make voluntary penances, mortifications. This is what Catholicism is and people who don't like it should not be in charge of it they shouldn't be they should not be in positions of authority over souls so mercy though freely given by god is given as a response to repentance mercy is i go to confession a hundred thousand times for the same sin And I'm given absolution every time as long as I actually am sorry for my sin and have a purpose of amendment, I will be given that absolution. That is mercy. Mercy is you don't deserve to be forgiven anymore if we're just being honest, but I'm going to forgive you again and again and again because I love you and because I have already sent you a savior to pay the price of your sins, a price you couldn't handle, you couldn't pay. That's mercy. Mercy is God's response to our own sorrow and our desire to love him more perfectly and to live more virtuously. The kind of mercy that's being peddled today is otherwise known as presumption, which is a sin against the Holy Spirit. And those are the ones that don't get forgiven if we get stuck in them. Once your heart is hardened, once you presume that God's mercy is something that's just going to be given to you, no matter what you do, you will begin to become a vicious person in the sense that you are filled with vice. That's where the word comes from. You're going to stop caring whether you sin or not. You're going to stop caring whether you go to confession or not. You're going to stop caring whether... This adulterous situation that you're in is bad for you or bad for your kids, which it is. It's never better for couples to stay in an adulterous situation. I don't care that they've had kids. You're teaching your children that it's okay to send yourself to hell. Heroic virtue, I'm sorry. It is for everyone, Cardinal Casper. It's for all of us. This world requires it. If we want heaven, it requires it. 
Many are called, but few are chosen. The gate is narrow. The eye of the needle. We've heard all of the parables from Jesus about the fact that getting to heaven isn't easy. It's hard. Even after everything that he's done for us, we have to work for it. God loves us and will always call us to him. Will give us the graces that we need, but we have to respond. We have to accept them and then we have to act. And it's painful and it's uncomfortable and it hurts. Offer it up, baby. I don't care whether the church tells you you need to do that anymore. Offer it up. This interview today was it was disappointing. You know, it was the first time I've ever gone on TV. And I can speak to you very conversationally here because uh, you know there are not the same constraints. But when you get tossed into a studio and you're staring at a camera and you've got audio piped into your ear from New York and you can't see the host and you're in a majorly compressed segment and you've got somebody else talking over you and you're trying to figure out how to respond and not look nervous and, you know, it's not the most conducive place to have these kinds of debates. But, but I think it was good that I had the opportunity to do it and I'm thankful for it. Um, I'm sorry that Monsignor Kiernan has a version of Catholicism that he hews to that's, well... Not really an authentic one. It's probably not his fault. He said he grew up in the 70s and the 80s. Well, so did I. And we were fed a load of crap. And the church that we grew up in is essentially a different religion from the one our grandparents grew up in. And we're finding our way back. And maybe he's not all the way there yet. So, yeah, let's pray for him. But, but I mean, what a terrible responsibility to be a priest and, and to tell people the things that are being told to them that will confirm them in their sins. It's, it's a horrifying thing. We're, <laughs> we're going to be held accountable for that. I'm going to be held accountable for my failures as a parent, for my failures as, as you know, somebody who engages actively in evangelization with those around me, for a failure to reach the souls entrusted to my care. And there are, there are souls that God puts in our path that we're supposed to help. Are we going to? Are we going to tell them that the way they're doing things is just fine? Love is not... Making people feel good. It's not about, oh, your poor little feelings and they're hurt. And I don't want you to feel bad. If you feel bad, maybe you won't listen to me anymore. Seriously, shut up. You're doing something that's bad for you. If you see a a diabetic wolfing down candy bars, you're going to be like, oh, you're just hungry. Poor thing. You're hungry. Have more sugar. And when they go into diabetic shock and into a coma and they die, oh, well, I just was worried about his feelings. Screw feelings. You know, how about we worry about people's eternal salvation? Because I tell you what, if they're, if they're burning in the fires of hell and they're thinking about all the people along the way who helped them to get there instead of to the place where they were intended from all eternity to go, they're going to hate you with a passion that you will never understand. Hopefully you won't experience it, but you might wind up there with them. And then you'll know. And you'll hate each other equally. Love is not about making people feel good. Love people, we want them to be happy. But happiness doesn't come at the expense of goodness or truth. It can't. It just can't. And it's not mean to say it. 
I understand that these situations are uncomfortable and that in our personal lives, it can be incredibly difficult to deal with and engage those who are living in a way that they shouldn't be. But we've got to try. If, if he could endure that scourging, that beating, the way of the cross and the crucifixion for us, can't we be a little uncomfortable for him? Thanks for listening. We'll, we'll be talking more about the exhortation, well, for the foreseeable future. It's a long document. You have been listening to the 1 Peter 5 podcast. This has been a production of 1 Peter 5 Incorporated, copyright 2016, all rights reserved. Please remember to visit us online at www.1peter5.com. You can join our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash 1peter5 and follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash, you guessed it, 1peter5. If you feel we have provided you with something of value, please hit our donate page located at 1peter5.com forward slash donate and make a contribution. It's tax deductible and not only helps pay for our web hosting and the fine content we provide, but keeps food on our tables, coffee in our cups, and the lights on, which really helps us see what we're doing. Until next time, I'm Steve Spokek. Thanks for listening.